pretty excited about this morning's sermon. So excited I feel confident enough I want you to look at the person next to you and say this sermon's for you. I feel like that what God has us on as a church where he's been leading my heart, uh, these are messages that, that, that they're applicable to all of our lives. I believe that this message hits home for each of us. Uh, we've been looking at the promise uh, that we saw in Scripture. As a pastor, there's three words that God's given me for us, for me, for the body of Christ this year. It's these three words you see me behind me. Fulfill all righteousness. That can be found in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. We've looked at the parts of this. We've looked at the word fulfill, um, the idea of accomplishing, satisfying, stretching to capacity. We've looked at the reality that in Scripture uh, it can be used for the idea of a due season, like when the time is up, when the timer goes off. That's what fulfill means. Ultimately, one translation I said said fulfill means to level up. It's leveling up. It's what I believe God wants for all of us is to level up, that we don't just stay in the same spot, but he's calling us to grow. He's calling us to change. I really believe in my heart of hearts that that's the position that God has for his people. Yeah, 2022 was where you are is great, but he's got something greater. He wants you to move up in his kingdom and in in all that he has. Then last week and the week before, uh, we looked at the word righteousness. Um, The most common definition for righteousness that you'll see is right standing or right relationship with God. Uh, We looked at righteousness uh, in in, in this idea uh, of what it is. Um, I'm going to read a verse. It's in Romans chapter 5. This was kind of where we hit on righteousness last week or the week before, depending on when we did it, um, just because of the way things were. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where its sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Righteousness. I mean, the reality of righteousness, it's the story of that book that we have or that iPad or that app that we have in the beginning there was one man who created sin or who sin came to this i guess he didn't create it but he's the one who brought sin into this world he broke the relationship that god established for this world through one man sin entered this world through another man through the through the next adam the new adam whatever you want to call it through jesus christ redemption came in this world if we can get that picture of righteousness i feel really good about us that things weren't right when sin came in things were made right through jesus christ That's righteousness. Pastor Steve will call that righteousness with a capital R. That understanding of righteousness is imperative. All righteousness must be found through Jesus Christ. The source of all righteousness is absolutely Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about last week. Righteousness apart from Jesus Christ, Isaiah described it as filthy rags. 
That's what it is. In myself, I can't produce righteousness. The only righteousness that I can have is through this relationship, through what was made right, through Jesus Christ. And I don't want to, to, to mess up your understanding, but I'm going to talk about righteousness in a few other ways this, these next few weeks. I'm not trying to add to salvation. I'm not trying to add to what, 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 what is. I know that James wrestled with that with some, where it became works-driven and whatever else. But what I want to do is look at righteousness because I think there's some really cool ideas about righteousness for us. There's some really profound. I, I mean, I am excited on the inside. I'm bubbling on the inside this morning to preach what God has placed on my heart for today about righteousness. I believe that if we listen to him, not just pastor, because pastors can say whatever, but listen to God through what I say. Filter me out in what I say and hear what he's saying to you about righteousness today. I believe that he's got something for us that we often miss when it comes to righteousness. And remember, the words that Jesus spoke was he wants to accomplish, fulfill all righteousness. I think there's more to righteousness than, quote unquote, the simplicity or the complexity, whichever way you look at it, of the right relationship with Jesus Christ, right standing with him. So today, my desire, and maybe that's why I'm so excited, I'm going to preach through an entire book in the Old Testament. It's 10 chapters. Uh, so the food's on. If you need to get a snack while I'm preaching, go ahead and do it. I won't feel bad. Just don't be a distraction to others. Don't touch the pies, though, because those are for later. Uh, I'm going to use this book. It's a peculiar book in the Old Testament. Actually, it's a book, uh, when, when, when people describe it, they say it's interesting because God isn't directly mentioned in this book. But his fingerprints are all over it. It's a book in, in the Old Testament where we're going to see something about righteousness that I believe God is speaking to us today. Before I get there, I'm going to pray just because I need to. God, I thank you this morning for your word. And I thank you for what you're going to do today. I thank you for who you've brought here, God, that we can have ears to hear from you. I pray, God, that we would be able to focus on you and hear your voice in the midst of it all today. For myself as a pastor, Lord, I lay myself before you asking that Steve would be taken out of this and your word would come forth, that your anointing and goodness would flow. We yield ourselves to you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. The book I want to talk about in the Old Testament is the book of Esther. I think, there we go. I knew I had a slide there. Esther is an interesting story. Uh, it's written about a hundred years after the Babylonian exile. Um, and so the Jews have been able to return back home. But some Jews didn't return back home. They, they liked where they were at and they stayed where they were. So this book, the book of Esther, is actually, it, it's set in, in um, Susa is the name. It's in, it's in the Persian Empire. Um, so where Esther is located, where the story takes place, is in the Persian Empire. There's a king, Xerxes. Uh, so there's some characters that we need to know as we tell the story. Esther, obviously, because the book's named after her, she's probably pretty important, right? She's got a cousin. His name's Mordecai. We're going to hear a lot about him in this story. There's a king. His name's Xerxes. All I'll say about him is dude likes to eat, drink, and be merry. That's what, that's what he's known for. Um, and then uh, the fourth one is this other character named Haman, and he's the bad guy in our story. Uh, so the story of Esther really starts, I said, uh, King Xerxes, or the king of, the, uh, of Persia, he liked to throw banquets. And so this story begins, Esther chapter 1, at a banquet that the king has thrown. Um, he's having a good time. 
And he decides, at the same time, his, his queen is throwing another banquet, and he calls for her to come up here before all the people because he wants to show off to all the guys how, how attractive his wife is. It's really what he's trying to do. He's trying to show her off in front of everyone else. But Vashti says, I don't want any part of this. So she's removed from being queen. That's chapter 1. So because we don't have a queen now, the, the king needs to find a queen. So what he says is, I want all the pretty virgins to come uh, do uh, a beauty pageant before me, something along those lines is really what it is. And of all the, the beautiful young women that come, there's this one woman, uh, she conceals her identity. Her name is Esther. And she stands out from the crowd. He picks her. He says, hey, I want her to be my wife. So guess what he does? He throws a banquet because that's what this king does. I'm telling you, that's what he does. Is he likes to throw parties. Esther is a book that would work good today to make a movie out of because, I mean, like I said, they don't directly mention God and it's got a lot of eat, drinking, be merry, a lot of parties, a lot of those things. That's what he does. So he throws a party to celebrate his new wife, his new queen. Esther's the, the one who is being celebrated. The party gets over. I don't think Mordecai was invited because we don't see him at the party. We see him at the city gates. And at the end of the party, what happens with with Mordecai, and all these pieces come together. That's what the cool part about this book is. He overhears two of the king's officials talking about killing the king. So what does he do? He texts Esther. And he says, hey, watch out. These two dudes want to kill the king. And so Esther tells the king the king has them killed. I mean, this is, this is the Old Testament. This is what happens. At the same time this is happening with Mordecai, we don't see any resolution to that story. I mean, all we know is that Mordecai reports it. The king has those officials killed. We move on. Next chapter, we meet this character named Haman. And Haman is basically the second in charge in, in all of Persia. He's got a lot of power, a lot of authority. So what does he do is he wants to abuse it. I mean, that's what we do when we get power and authority. We, tend to abuse, we want to abuse it. So he decides he's going to go around town, and he's just going to point at people and make them bow down to him. Because, I mean, why? Why not? They don't have a choice. And so Haman's going around. He's trying to get people to bow down to him. When he comes to this dude, here we go, Mordecai again. And he says, bow down to me. And what does Mordecai say? Remember Jews in the Old Testament, they wouldn't bow to anybody. That was the, the Jewish boys we talked about in Sunday school this morning with the kids. He said no. So what happens? Haman gets mad. How mad does Haman get? He gets real mad. He gets so mad that he goes back to the king and he says, King, we got a problem. These Jews are a problem. How about we get rid of them? I mean, it's the easiest thing to do. Let's just get rid of them. And so he, he writes an edict. The king does. It says all the, the Jews will be killed in the kingdom. This is the story of Esther. And they've got to decide when to do it. So they've got some dice. He throws the dice. It says 11 months. So in 11 months, we're going to kill all the Jews. That's, that's the position in Susa that's happening right now. So what's next? So Mordecai becomes mortified when he hears the edict of a king. Mordecai's upset because guess what this means? It means he's dead and everybody he loves is dead. And so he's, he, he's at the city gate again. That's where he liked to be. The king liked to eat, drink, and be merry. Mordecai liked to be at the city gate. That's what we see in this book. Uh, anyway, and so he sends a message. It's not a text message. I get it. He sends a message to Esther. And he says, Esther, what are we going to do? The king wants to kill all the Jews. And Esther's response is, I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, I can't go talk to him. I mean, think about this in relationship. She was the queen. 
But no one could talk to the king unless they were invited. Not even the queen could talk to the king unless they were invited. And so when, when he said, why don't you go talk to the king and do something about this? She said, basically, that's a death sentence for my life for me to go talk to the king uninvited. I cannot do that. It's not okay for me to do that. So his response to her, he sent back this answer. Oh, this is a good answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. You're about to die too, is what he's saying. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise to another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I believe that there's a position of righteousness. And I want to talk about a righteous position today. That there's a place in which God has you for a specific purpose to accomplish his plans. And that if we're not in that position, that what God desires to be accomplished can't be accomplished through us anymore. You're that important to the kingdom of God. You're that important to the plans of God that there is a righteous position. There's a position of righteousness that God has for all of his people. He wants to fulfill all righteousness through our our position. Like, where are we at? Esther, Mordecai said, you've been ascended. You thought you just got there because you were pretty and you could, you could smile and bat those eyelashes at the king. You got there to this royal position for this moment, for such a time as this. You've been positioned strategically that God can use you. Why? Well, we'll see the why here in a little bit. So, so Esther decides that she's going to have to respond. She's going to have to do something about this situation. And what does she do? Well, she knows that she's got to go talk to the king. So she goes and talks to the king, risks her life. This is crazy. She's literally risking her, her life. He touches his scepter, so she's allowed to talk to him. And she says, i got a request. Well, what's your request? Let's have, she knows the king. Let's have some banquets. He's like, yeah, I love banquets. Right? She said, but let's just make this one special. So we're going to have two banquets and let's just invite Haman to him. So they're going to have these banquets, and he's inviting Haman. The first banquet happens, right? They have a good time at the banquet, and they leave the banquet. When they leave, guess where Mordecai is? I think he's at the city gate again. Haman sees him, and uh, uh, Mordecai is supposed to be mortified right now, but Mordecai isn't mortified anymore because Esther's doing something about the problem. And so Haman gets really upset because he's expecting to see Mordecai in a position of humility, scared for his life, and Mordecai is not scared. So he decides to erect a stake where he's going to kill Mordecai the next day. He, the next morning, he's going to go talk to the king and say, King, well, Mordecai, it's just enough. Let's get rid of him. Dude, just problems. Okay, so that's his plan. So I love, I said, God isn't mentioned directly in this book. The king goes to bed that night. And... Before he goes to sleep, you know what he likes? He likes bedtime stories. Levi, you still get bedtime stories, right? In, in his bedtime stories, I mean, because he's a king, guess what story he liked to hear? 
his story. <laughs> so he had a guy that would sit there and read him his story of how great of a king he was. I mean, you talk about being able to fall asleep. I'm a good guy. I've done all these great things. You're reading it. You're telling me about it. There's, there's no other way to go to sleep than listen to someone tell your story. And so he's laying there in bed, and his scribe is reading his story. You know what page of the story he turns to? This is God. So there was a day where two of your officials were plotting to kill you. And there was a man. His name was Mordecai. And that man saved your life. And the king's like, oh my gosh, I forgot all about that. Like, I wanted to send him an Amazon gift card. I forgot all about it. And so the king goes to bed that night thinking about how great Mordecai is and what should he do to honor what he forgot to honor before. I mean, just coincidentally, that same night that Haman's getting upset and plotting to kill, erecting a stake to kill Mordecai on, the king is hearing the story of Mordecai in his bedroom, in his annals, the journal, the narrative of his life. So he's excited the next morning. The king wakes up, and him and Haman are supposed to have like a, a, a meeting that morning, and they get together, and Haman's coming to plot Mordecai's death. And guess what the king says? Haman, you're not going to believe this. I've got a job for you. But, 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 but king, I want to ask you. No, wait. I'm so excited about last night. I'm so excited about what I remembered. But, but king, I want to tell you something. No, wait, wait, wait. I just got to tell you what happened. I was in bed last night and the scribe was reading and he was telling me, but king, I want to tell you about, about what, what I'm upset about. The scribe told me about Mordecai. I, I, I need you to do me a favor. Oh, you want me to kill him? <laughs> no. I need you to grab one of them royal robes and one of the royal horses, and go find Mordecai. Probably look at the city gate, because that's where he's always at. And I want you to lead. Can you imagine this? I want you to lead Mordecai around town on that horse with the royal robe. That wasn't what the day was supposed to be, is where Haman's at. So Haman obeys the king because he has no other choice or else he dies. He goes and gets Mordecai, puts a coat on Mordecai, leaves Mordecai around town. The banquet is the next night. This banquet, uh, the next banquet is where Esther is going to reveal herself to the king. Uh, and so at this banquet, Esther answers, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Or King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy. This enemy, this vile Haman. Esther is revealing to the king someone is trying to kill her people. The king's edict is literally what she's referencing here. But Haman was the man behind this. Do you know what the king decides? Remember that stake that Haman had built to kill Mordecai on? Remember the stake that he said, well, you you already got it up there. Let's just go use it for Haman instead. And Haman is killed on the stake in which he had built to kill Mordecai on. You know who becomes 
the position, the second in command in the kingdom? Mordecai becomes the second in command. And now they're trying to figure out what's going to happen. Because the, the crazy thing, we don't get this because we can say something and change it tomorrow. We can, we can edit our, co- our, our quotes on Facebook so no one knows whether we said it or not. Like We can change it, we can erase it, we can remove it, whatever. But in this day and age, once an edict was made, there was no edits. It is what it is. And in 11 months, we're going to kill all the Jews. I mean, that's the edict. And so now Esther and Mordecai are sitting down with the king trying to figure out what they do. So they come up with a secondary edict that basically says, hey, this day's coming, but Jews, guess what you're empowered to do? Get ready and get it on. Like, get ready and, and defend yourselves. So Haman's family was first, and then the rest of the people came. Anyone who tried to attack the Israelites, guess what happened? They were defeated, and, and the deliverance, remember that word that, that Esther had used before, the deliverance of the Jews in Susa happened because of the position of Esther. Ten chapters. We just told the whole story in the book of Esther. Probably can move pretty far ahead in my notes. Long introduction, and I need to get a drink. Really, I don't, but, you know, I was a kid's pastor once, and we do sermons, and we have illustrations, and we try to make people think we didn't plan things, like there just happened to be a pitcher of water and a basin over here. But I could use a drink right now. So if I need a drink, I, I just got I guess got to pour a glass of water, right? What was wrong with what I just did? What's that? That's all right. I'm not drinking out of there. Oh, wait. I didn't have my glass. You see, it was over here the whole time. It was in the wrong. Hey, thanks. There you go. Now I can fill up my glass. But, but I'm still thirsty. Why? Still in the wrong position. There's something powerful right there. Sometimes we can be in the right spot, but we're in completely the wrong position. You know, we're there and everything's pouring, but it's me. I'm not in the right position. I mean, isn't that what righteousness is? Right standing? And until I change myself, I don't know that I can do what I was designed to do. There's something in... I'm going to make a mess. The right position for water after you use it for a sermon illustration is on the ground. Because inevitably it will land there at some point in your sermon. I will take a drink. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. The point of Jesus coming was to fulfill all righteousness. And, and I love the, the reality of righteousness. I, I, 
I, I can't emphasize enough how incredible it is to, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from dead, to go from being under the, the authority of sin to the freedom of the, the hope of eternal life, which is in Jesus Christ. But I want to say that there's continual righteousness that happens in our lives. And maybe we can call this righteousness with a lowercase r, but there's a righteousness that God has for you. There's a position that God is stirring for you, a position he needs you, and maybe he's orchestrated all these things that you didn't realize so you could be in that place at that time for such a time as this. Listen. If no one can get a drink, maybe you're in the wrong position. If you wonder why... No one comes, right? He says what? That streams of living water should do what? They should flow from you. And when people are thirsty, they should be coming to you. But what happens when they come and everything's empty? Maybe, just maybe, you're in the wrong position. Maybe you're in the wrong place completely. Maybe you're in the right place, but you just haven't readjusted yourself. What do I have to do to this cup to make it work? I had to flip it over. You know what repentance is? A lot of people define repentance as 180 degree turn. <laughs> Maybe some of that is what I need to do. I need to repent. Maybe I can be in church. I can be in the right place. I can be having the right conversations. I can have the right t-shirt on, the right bumper sticker on my car. I can have the right header on my Facebook. I can have a cross on my shoulder. I can have all these things, but I haven't repented and I haven't changed what's inside of me and nothing good comes from me because I'm not allowing him to do it. There's a righteousness of position that God is stirring in his people. I want to be in the righteous position. I'm not calling myself righteous in the world's eyes, but I want to be in the right position. I referenced uh, football. You ever watched a football game? We're not talking about officials. Stop giggling. And you watch the, the quarterback say hike, and, and the receiver runs a, a, a curl route, and the quarterback throws a, a, a streak pattern. And you see the frustration on the sideline because one of them was thrown to the wrong position, or the running back is supposed to chip block on, on the defender coming around the edge, and the running back runs out to catch a pass, and the quarterback gets walloped because the, the, the running back wasn't in the right position. The guard's supposed to pull, but they forget to pull, and so someone comes in and smacks the, 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 the quarterback. I mean, there's a position that God has for us in life. Where does our position come from? Ephesians chapter 4, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body 
joined together and held by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Where does our position come from? It comes from the head. How do my feet know to keep moving and not fall off the front step? It comes from my head. And and he talks about in this, not just your feet, not just your knees, not just your bones, but every supporting ligament. You know what happens when, when my ACL doesn't work? I'm not doing much back and forth while I'm preaching. There's a righteous position that the head, that is God, that's the Father, that's the one who we profess as Lord, has for your life. There's a place in which He needs you to be so that the body, the body of Christ, can accomplish the purpose that the Father has decided. And you know what excites me as a pastor? The thought of what it looks like when the body is all in the right position. It is what stirs me. See, I'm the pastor who equips the saints for the work of the gospel. That's in that verse. When I start thinking about what it could look like if every part was doing exactly what the Father wanted them to do. Can I say we'd be unstoppable? Can I say there's nothing that would hinder the purpose of the Father? I mean, it's pretty cool when you start thinking about what can happen when each part does its, its purpose. And remember, there's another verse that Paul writes where it says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the hand can't say to the ear, or whatever else. Like, we're all important in this. And how God made you is imperative in this. It's what's so cool about this. I'm weird. It's okay. Like, I'm different. I get it. Pam's cousin. Before we were married, you know what she told me? There was a song that was written that said, I'm not cool, but that's okay. God loves me anyway. You know what she told me? I think of you every time I hear that song. <laughs> Man! I think she meant it's a compliment. I'm me, and I'm who God made me, so I can be what God needs me to be. And I'm where God needs me, so I can do what God needs me to do. And I'm in the upright position, in the position he needs me, so his will can be accomplished. Remember the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament? The wee little man, he was a short guy, he wasn't cool either, it's okay. God loved him too, he was a tax collector anyway. What did he do? He positioned himself. I love that word position. He climbed the tree. We've talked about that before. When Jesus was coming, he ran ahead of the crowd. And Jesus looks up in the tree and he says, come down. Let's go have dinner together. They have dinner together. And what does Zacchaeus say? I'll get there. He stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything. See, he was putting himself in that right position. This is repentance to a whole new degree. He was a tax collector who had cheated people. He knew he, had, he was accountable for that, and he wanted to make right what he had done wrong. Here now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. 
Jesus said to him, today what? Salvation has come to this house. See, something about position isn't just about me. Listen to this. Something about your position isn't just about you. And sometimes it's okay to say, hey, I don't care. It's just me. Your righteous position isn't just affecting you. The Jews were delivered because of Esther's position. Do you hear that? Zacchaeus' house was saved because of his position. Your position isn't just affecting you and your relationship with God. See, your righteousness with God has an effect on, on the world that surrounds you, on the systems in which you're a part of. Does that make sense? Like that's where some responsibility, that's where some awe, that's where some, some, some authority comes to this whole idea of position. Because if I'm in the wrong position, the quarterback might get sacked and the whole team might lose. If I'm not where I'm supposed to be, then all of a sudden, maybe, just maybe, my kids... If I'm not in the position God needs me to be, my neighbors, my community. Righteous position is imperative. I've got one more scripture I want to read, and hopefully it sounds familiar by this point. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. Jesus said, I need to be in the right position. The Father wants me to do this. Someone asked, we were talking about it again the other day, like, why did Jesus have to be baptized? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. The only logical answer I can come up with is because the Father said to God said to, did it make sense? No, John says, I should be getting baptized by you. John's been preparing the way for this moment, right? John was preaching, guess what? The kingdom of God is near. The Messiah is coming. That's what John's message was. He was the, the voice in the wilderness that was crying out about the one who would be coming. That was John's role. Jesus is here, so what should he be doing? He should be screaming from the top of his lungs, the Messiah is this dude! Right? That's everything. So when Jesus comes and, and says, I need to be baptized by you, he's like, whoa, 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 you got this all screwed up, man. And Jesus says, no, I've got to be in the right position. And John consented, like, okay, dude, you're the Messiah, whatever, this doesn't make sense. But what happens? I'm not exactly sure why Jesus had to be baptized except for my assumption that the Father said, but what happens? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. See, he was in the right position. At that moment, the heaven was open and the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighted on him. Alighting on him. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I remember the Spirit of, dove, the Spirit of God descended from heaven is what I remember reading. This is a pretty profound moment. Like, John's job just got a lot easier. Right? Because then there's a voice that says what? Everything that John wanted to say. 
A voice from heaven then cries out, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now John's done a lot of baptisms, but he's never had this moment before. And John's job just got a lot easier because I'm guessing it wasn't just Jesus and John witnessing the baptism. So anybody who was around that saw this dove or this thing like a dove falling upon Jesus and heard this voice that cried out from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Guess what? They were really ready to engage this whole idea of the Messiah. His righteous position prepared him for his ministry. His ministry follows this moment. He goes to the, gar- or the, the wilderness and he's tempted by the, the enemy and he goes and, and proclaims the word of God, right? Because he's put himself in position to be prepared for what's coming. You guys can come forward. This morning, um, it's the last Sunday or the first Sunday of the month. And so we're going to do communion And I love communion because it prepares us for what God has. Remember, Jesus said what? Do this in remembrance of me, right? Whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll we'll read that in a little bit. He sets the table. Table fellowship, it's something that I'm so intrigued with. I'm probably going to write a paper on it at some point. Uh, I did all the research last year or last semester, but... The idea of table fellowship and what's accomplished at the table. What was accomplished at this last meal with Jesus and his disciples? The one that we're remembering. What did he tell them? First of all, he told them to be cannibals, right? I mean, he said, you're going to eat this bread and this is my body, this is my blood. He told them that uh, what happened before he, he got to that point. He gave them a new position. What was the position they were supposed to be embracing? What was the argument that happened before the meal? Who was going to wash the feet? And he said, no, I, I didn't come to be, to, to be served. I came to serve. That's what you guys are going to do. You're going to go serve. That's the position in which he's calling them to. He tells them the position of, uh, of the blood and the body of Christ. That's something we have to understand. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the body, I have a part in what God's doing. The blood, I've been made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want to be in step with the body. The table, it's an awesome revelation of this idea to position ourselves for the presence of God. This morning, as we participate in communion, I'm going to ask you, Ask the Lord about your position. In a second, Angie's going to share just a a testimony that she has as they're passing out the elements. But as they're passing out the elements, the the worship team will pray for just a little or play for just a little while. They can pray too if they want. Um, But they're going to play for a little bit. I want you really, as you're at the table today, to ask God about your position. You know, it starts with, "Am I even in the right place? Like, is there a change that has to happen in me?" Have I been living outside of the promise? Do I need that righteousness the pastor talked about in the beginning, that I've been under the authority of sin, and that sin has led me to nowhere except for a position uh, of separation from God? And I need to accept the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that, that there had to be blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. That blood was Jesus Christ. And then I want the promise of forgiveness 
in my life. Maybe as you're looking at, at the body and, and blood, it's not that you're in the wrong place, but you're just kind of upside down. Like you've got some things in you that you know are in you, that you've got to work in you, that you've got to wrestle through in you, that maybe you've got to change from, that maybe you've got to turn away from, that maybe you've got to turn over from. Maybe you need to do that fun thing I just said, repent. Like change in me. And if you say, no, pastor, I feel like I'm in the right position at the right time, then why don't you just ask God to start pouring? Because there's someone who needs a drink. I promise you that. Nina puts a coat on. I'm up here sweating. Someone needs a drink. And maybe you're the vessel to give it. And I'm going to encourage you to begin praying. Next week is the Sunday before Valentine's Day, guys. I ordered 250 roses this year that will be up here next Sunday. Rose Sunday in our church is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. It's a Sunday I empower the church. What happens is we have 250 roses, and I say take someone and tell someone that God loves them. It's just that simple. No strings attached. Like, here's a rose. God loves you. 250 roses. But maybe as you're praying because you're praying about your position, you can pray about God laying on your heart someone who needs to receive the love of God. In that maybe he would start estering. Can I make that a word now? Mordecaiing. Just like working. You know, you're like, he puts a name there and you're like, uh-uh, that's Haman. Hey, hey, scary people. <laughs> and he starts working. Because we've got a God who if he's got a purpose, he's working for you to accomplish that purpose. He's not working against you to accomplish your purpose. And maybe he can start not just working in your life, but working in their life. Maybe he can start preparing them to come to the city gate so you can have a conversation with them. Maybe he can start changing in them so that you can be in the right position, that they can hear, that they can receive, that they can experience the love of God that he's shown you and you get to show them. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to pass the elements out. Angie's going to have a testimony to share. And then I'm just going to encourage us to have communion together. Father, I thank you this morning for this word. And Spirit of God, I thank you that through my words and through your word, you speak to our hearts. And God, as a pastor, my prayer is that you would fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness that is found only in Jesus Christ. Righteousness that comes when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. God, righteousness that's not just found through sin and forgiveness, but righteousness that's revealed, God, through our position. This morning, God, as we come to your table, help us to hear the head. If you're speaking for us to support, let us support. If you're speaking for us to walk, let us walk. If you're speaking for us to grab, let us grab. If you're speaking for us to speak, let us speak. God, that we're in the right, right position to be used by you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Just take a moment and ask God about your righteous position. You know, is there unrighteousness you just need to repent from? Is there something, a, a plan that God has spoken and you kind of forgot about it? And maybe he's still speaking. You know, is there a place that he needs you? Is there a person that he's calling you to? Is there a, an opportunity that he's setting before you that you just got to get there so you can be filled? Let God fill you. Let him stir you. Let him uh, prepare you for what's coming. He's invited you to his table. And he's placed in your hands his blood, the cup of the new covenant. He's placed in your hands his body, the body of Christ in which we're a part of. Scripture says, For I received from the Lord, but I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Today, as you partake of the body, what position are you in his body? What place are you in the body of Christ? What has God designed you for? What is God stirring in you? I rejoice that God has created me for a purpose. I rejoice that that I'm no longer a slave. I rejoice that he's got plans and purposes, that he needs me. The God of all, the one who is, who was, and always will be, needs you for his body to be made complete. God, I thank you for the body. And I thank you for my righteous position in your body. I pray, God, that you would help me to always be in position. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let us partake. says in the same way after he took a cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me whenever you eat this bread drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes I thank you for my righteousness that's found in the blood of Jesus Christ you know as you take this cup you're holding the promise of the forgiveness of your sins You're participating in the new covenant, the promise that what was is no longer, that you're no longer under the authority of sin and death. You're no longer under the law that was written by human hands, but you're under the law that was written by the Spirit of God on human hearts. I'm no longer destined to die and be apart from from, from, and, and suffer for eternity, but I have a place, and I'm a joint heir now with Jesus Christ. He's prepared a place for me. I am forgiven. I am righteous. God, I thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ we've been made righteous. God, I thank you for all that you do, all that you've done, all that you continue to do. I thank you for promises that have been made, for promises that have been fulfilled, and for promises that will be fulfilled. God, I thank you for houses that will be saved because of our righteousness for people who will be delivered because of our righteous position that's found in Jesus Christ. 
let us partake. If you just want to spend a little bit more time at his table, like, it's okay, his table's still open. If you just want to spend a little more time in his presence, you're welcome to do that in the sanctuary. Uh, but beyond that, I'll say the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, may he turn his face towards you, grant you his peace. And may you be in righteous position. Amen. Be blessed.